Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a podcast about the humanities and interdisciplinarity, produced by the Cohen Center for the Humanities at James Madison University. Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. I'm Michael Klein, Director of the Cohen Center for the Humanities at James Madison University. And today we're joined by Dr. Dennis Lowe, Associate Professor of Global Cinemas at James Madison University. Uh, Dennis, thanks for joining us and speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Um, now we're gonna to touch upon your book, The Authorship of Place, A Cultural Geography of the New Chinese Cinemas uh, later. Um, but I thought we'd start by discussing a film series on Japanese cinema that you're part of. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, so this film series uh, is called Savoring Cinema, a Japanese film series. It's a um, Japanese film festival that'll run for two semesters long, um, fall uh, 22 and also spring 23. Uh, it's a wonderful um, slew of films that's um, going to be shown mostly in Harrison 1261. And it's co-sponsored by the Cohen Center for the Humanities and the Madison Art Collection. Uh, the timing for this was done so that it could be held in conjunction with the Listen B Museum's show called Savoring the Moon, a Japanese Art of the Floating World. And um, all of these films are just truly terrific classics of Japanese art, cinema, and also popular cinema um, from the last um, several decades. And um, we will kick off this screening with the uh, first film in Japanese film history uh, to really just open up, you know, Japanese cinema to the entire world. Um, this is the film Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa, um, which I'm sure many of you probably have heard about before in one way or the other, um, at least through the idea of the Rashomon effect, which um, in legal circles is referring to when you have conflicting testimonies. Um, it's really a perception bender. It's um, it's one of those films where it just makes you think twice about how you can trust um, the veracity of narration, especially in cinema, which is a medium that is rather notorious uh, for bending the truth. Uh, that's going to be followed up by um, Yasujiro Ozu's Floating Weeds, uh, which is a really delicate, really intricately spun tale about a down and out um, a, a theater troupe. And um, it really takes a look behind the scenes lovingly at the tensions and also the um, just the family dynamics of this dysfunctional but really engaging uh, theater troupe. And finally, we have Kobayashi's Harakiri, uh, which is um, a film that really is very critical of Japan's authoritarian um, government not uh, just in the present day in the World War II period, uh, but all the way back to the 17th century. Um, and so that'll be shown on December 6th, 7 p.m. Um, all the screenings will again be shown in Harrison 1261. So um, this is just a terrific opportunity for people in the community and for students and faculty to come and watch these screenings um, and have a conversation about it as well. Please tell us a little bit about your own background uh, and how you got to be involved with Global Cinema Scholarship and come to GMU. So when I was at UCLA doing my um, doctoral work, I was studying the 
um, aesthetics and the politics of Chinese language film, uh, specifically looking at Taiwanese and mainland Chinese cinemas. And um, I was first really interested in this topic of kind of comparing and contrasting the aesthetics and politics of these two cinemas um, because I am personally uh, sort of from that region of the world. Um, I grew up mostly in Taiwan myself, but I also have family in China. And um, when I was growing up, really, so much of the emphasis was um, really just on studying and making sure I got into a good college, um, all those good things that uh, sons in their uh, Taiwanese families do. And so I had very little opportunity to kind of reflect on sort of the larger scale social and political changes and developments that were happening in, environment, in my environment. Um, when I got to college, that was ironically the first time that I had a chance to see uh, Taiwan and China in a brand new light. And that new perspective was really offered to me um, in cinema classes that I took on global and world cinemas, as well as East Asian cinemas. Um, I did all that work at Stanford. And um, once I kind of set down that path, I um, decided to really just, you know, delve even deeper into these topics. Um, in many ways, it's like time traveling. It's like going back to your childhood and seeing it from a totally new perspective. And what I discovered, of course, is that to really understand the politics and the aesthetics of the arts, especially the cinemas in that part of the world, you can't do this without understanding many of the other trends and many of the other larger political, economic, and social developments happening elsewhere in the world. Um, so I've always taken a kind of um, comparative and global perspective uh, to the work that I do. The specific work that I do um, in terms of my research into Chinese language films uh, surrounds the topic of how the countryside is represented in cinema. And what I found studying global cinemas uh, for so long, for about a decade and a half now, is that much of the emphasis on today's world cinemas scholarship is on the transnationality and the sort of global aesthetics of film. And I feel that much of this emphasis, of course, is coming out of the fact that globalization and uh, these kinds of internationalized aesthetics have become a very common thing starting from the 1990s and 2000s. Um, but one of the uh, consequences of this is that there tends to be um, a bias, if you may, um, in scholarship towards studying films that are set in very urban, very modern, uh, very international and globalized settings sometimes at the expense of um, photographing and documenting and studying what happens outside of these world cities like Taipei, like Beijing, Tokyo, and Seoul. Um, what of the rest of the country, for instance? What of the countryside and the suburbs? Um, I myself, having grown up in the suburbs and the countryside of Taiwan, in a location that was rapidly being replaced by technology industries and also Taiwan Science Park, I could see that it was not just the major changes happening inside the cities that really told us, you know, um, about 
the major issues going on inside the countries of the time, but it was really what was happening in the countryside that was worth our um, you know, critical attention as well. Um, so I set out to look at specifically the films of the Taiwanese cinema and also the Chinese fifth and sixth generation cinemas. Together, these uh, film movements are collectively known as the new Chinese cinemas. And they are essentially the first film movements to come out of that region um, that really were winning awards left and right internationally um, for their very innovative and bold approach to historically controversial topics and also to a manner of capturing social and political changes that uh, deviated from mainstream Hollywood and uh, sort of classical narrative traditions. Uh, these were films that were very influenced by Italian neorealism, by the French New Wave, and by other experimental genres as well, too. And so they really captured uh, a portrait of the transforming Chinese and Taiwanese societies, including the countryside, in ways that just have never been seen before prior to the 1980s. And that's really what caught my attention there. And so is that why your book, The Authorship of Place, focuses on the cultural geography of the new Chinese cinemas because of the changing landscape that was going on at this time? So as I mentioned, um, so much of the pre-existing scholarship likes to focus on the urban and the transnational. And one of the consequences of that, besides kind of, you know, leaving the countryside behind, is an assumption made by much of 90s and early 2000s scholarship that the depiction of the countryside is really just a focus of older films and thus denotes uh, tradition in the past, a bygone era. Um, whereas settings set in the urban or in more globalized spaces are reflecting on the present day or sort of ideas of the future that reflect on present day conceptions of national identity. Um, in other words, there's a very linear history being told of the geography as it's represented in Chinese language films. Um, just to sum it up, right, the countryside is equated with the past, the urban with the present, the global with the future, and also um, to some extent the present. Now, my book is setting out to complicate this view, right, this very linear understanding um, that the countryside always denotes the past and the city always denotes the future. Instead, I look at films from the perspective of cultural geography, which is looking at how the filmmakers uh, are themselves urban residents. Usually they come out of cities and many of these films are shot right from this urban perspective of the countryside. So they're not documentaries of the countryside shot by people who have, you know, been born and raised in the countryside. Um, instead, in many ways in my book, I talk about how these films are the result of a tourist perspective of the countryside, right? But not just any tourist either. Tourists who want to go beyond kind of the superficial and the sort of surface layer. These are directors who see themselves as ethnographers, as sociologists, but in the end, they are still outsiders to the countryside. 
So when I talk about cultural geography, I'm talking about this really fascinating sort of um, relationship, right, between the imagination of the countryside by these urban residents and the realities of what they found actually in the countryside. And I discuss how the um, sort of the encounter, right, between the urban and the rural results in these fascinating depictions of the countryside, which to date in scholarship has really been talked about primarily from the perspective of um, aesthetic history or literary history, uh, but it's never been seen as um, impacted by these, you know, ground level face-to-face -face interactions between filmmakers and the communities that they're interacting with when they're shooting on location. So it's a really interdisciplinary project of mine that um, takes together ideas from anthropology, from cultural geography, and of course, film studies to look at how cinema is not just a reflection of social changes, but literally how is it the product of these social interactions and changes happening on the ground in these production environments in the shooting locations now i understand you're also moving into virtual reality in some of your scholarship i've always felt that in cinema right um you you have already so many choices you can make um to represent a place you have the frame, you have your lenses, you have your camera distances. You can do so many different kinds of things with the mise-en-scene and with the production design. It seems like there's a million variables you can use to manipulate or distort or document the reality of a place. Um, but once you move into virtual reality, right, the number of options, which seems many already in 2D cinema, explodes, right? Um, and it really approaches a concept that Andre Bazin, a very important film critic and film theorist uh, who worked with the French New Wave filmmakers back in the day in the 1950s and 60s, um, he called this idea total cinema, which is this idea that cinema could one day, uh, as it perfects itself technologically, be capable of capturing all reality, right? So not just kind of the reality shown in front of a camera, but the reality as experienced and lived uh, in the moment. And virtual reality, if you take away, right, the, uh, the issues with uh, pixels and also the processor speeds of the headsets, uh, we're really starting to see a renaissance, right, in the use of virtual reality as a storytelling and documentation medium starting from about 10 years ago with the um, with the advent of new virtual reality headsets like the Oculus Rift and you know, the Oculus Quest. And um, what's happening is that we're moving towards this idea of the total cinema that Andre Bazan is talking about, but in a way that is very um, perplexing, uh, very exciting, but also terrifying all at the same time. And the reason why I say it's terrifying is because it, um, it really captures our reality in a way that is uncanny, right? Uh, it seems familiar what we see inside these images. And yet once we don the headset, we realize that it, it's not reality, uh, that there are always aspects of this technological apparatus that 
will make us feel like what we're seeing is a mediation, right? And so this verisimilitude, this degree of verisimilitude, but also the idea that the feeling you get while you're seeing this level of realism, that it's just not real, um, it's a tension that you constantly feel when you're negotiating a virtual reality experience. And what I found is that the impact on our perception of place, when we see place in virtual reality, is that it reveals to us even more effectively than cinema in many ways, the constructedness of the environments around us. This is very much related to my book project, The Authorship of Place, because inside that book, I talk about um, the process through which constructions of nature and reconstructions of nature are naturalized and made to look realistic, made to look natural. Um, this is taking that dynamic to the next level. Um, and in many ways, we're starting to see filmmakers from the Taiwanese cinema um, and also East Asia in general starting to use the virtual reality medium to explore these very kinds of issues I've been outlining. I, I wanted to touch upon a different region, uh, the global south. Uh, what is the, the, the status of, of filmmaking in South America, in Africa? Is there anything uh, we should be on the lookout for there? Yeah, so in in South America and Africa, we have you know very lively, popular cinemas and very popular sort of um, television mediums as well too. Uh, we have telenovelas right in South America. We have Nollywood in Africa, and this is really speaking to the fact that in um, today's media industries, um, in order to be profitable, in order to have a sustainable film industry, you don't only have to make films uh, that compete um, only on the terms of Hollywood's terms. Um, back in the 1960s and 1970s, um, fighting Hollywood, right, and making sure that you had a domestic film and media industry that was sustainable, that would be watched and um, interesting to local audiences was a real uphill battle, right? Um, and at the time, the only way to really create um, a medium stories that would be able to uh, combat, right, the Americanizing, globalizing forces of American cinema and television uh, was to create really, if you want to use a very general term, an art cinema or a kind of revolutionary cinema. Uh, the scholar Tashoma Gabriel called it the third cinema, uh, which is in contrast to first cinema or Hollywood, second cinema, which is European auteur or art cinema. Third cinema is the conception of a revolutionary cinema that isn't art for the sake of art, uh, isn't escapist, isn't just entertaining, but it's challenging and it provokes people to discover um, their identities in a post-colonial environment. Now, that was a very politically charged project that while giving the start to many a filmmaker's career in the global south, it also constrained their storytelling scope and also what was deemed appropriate in their aesthetics. And eventually the third cinema movements in the global south petered out 
uh, by the 1970s and 1980s because audience members in the Global South simply didn't want to watch films that were constantly challenging them on such an explicit um, political and social level. They wanted stories that they could identify with. They wanted to have characters that they could see reflected their own everyday um, sort of challenges, hardships, and things to look forward to. And so starting from really the 80s, 90s, and moving on till today, what we see, if we want to talk about it on a very broad level, is that in the global south, local film industries, which used to be nationalized, really heavily promoting the development of third cinema style films, um, have now opened up their economies, right? They are co-producing films with Hollywood. They're co-producing uh, television shows with streaming giants like Netflix. And together, they're creating stories that have a much more Hollywoodized feel to them. Uh, the storytelling is much more familiar in many ways. The aesthetics is not as charged. You might even argue not as innovative. But at the same time, it's reached a much broader public, not just domestically, but also internationally. Um, and so that's kind of where we're at today, right? They're, the popular media, the television and the cinema are really thriving in the global south. Um, but in many ways, it's also watered down its political zeal and aspirations. And I know I'm only talking about this on a very broad, very, you know, very, you might even say generalizing level, but this is kind of the trend, right? Um, not only in the global South, but you might argue it's a trend that's occurring in East Asia, uh, South Asia as well, too. Dennis, is there anything else you'd like to share uh, while we have you here? Anything else you're working on or anything else we should be aware of uh, in global cinema? I would have to say that... I think one of the things I've encountered, right, in teaching my class, Ideology and Global Cinemas, it's a gen ed class, English 222. Um, I've been teaching this for about six to seven years now. And one of the um, expectations that students have coming into the class is that each of the films are going to represent some aspect of the national or cultural essence, right? of uh, a country. So it's very much like the tourist perception of cultural products and cultural artifacts. Like when you go to Disney World, you go to Epcot Center, and you expect to see that every different part of the park has a different set of costumes, different kinds of architecture, different kinds of folk music. And somehow that reflects the essential quality of that culture. Now, film historians and scholars of globalization will argue of course, that's just a fantasy. That's just something that is sold to tourists so that they would want to go over there and discover something other and exotic and different. Um, and that's uh, just a fantasy. It's not reality. Um, but what I found is that the truth is somewhere more murky. It's kind of in the middle, in between, right? Um, that in this day and age, in order for many of these countries to survive and to compete globally, they sell these touristified images and narratives of themselves, right? And it's not, it. you might call it a form of self-exotification, exotic, but you also might call it a way of rebranding itself 
uh, so it can stand out in a world where everybody is doing their best to stand out, for instance, in a slew of film selections on Netflix. And so the reality is that, yes, right, it is a kind of fantasy to think that every national cinema is reflective of these unique, exotically different cultural differences between the countries. But it's also true um, that these self-perceptions, right, are very real. And um, so it's important that viewers of these cinemas, for instance, when you go and watch the Japanese film series, that you don't go in there thinking, oh, these are just documentaries of, you know, uh, pre-modern Japan. These are these are not just reflections of the absolute truth. Yes, they're informed by the biases of the directors. They're informed um, by the biases and the sort of um, politics and economics of their production companies and the social context of the time. But it is also very much a reflection of these directors on Japanese culture itself. And so I think it's going too far to say that these films have nothing to do with Japanese cultural identity in essence, right? They do capture many aspects that are important to Japanese cultural identity, all the way from pre-modern to kind of the present day. The idea of honor, saving face in the samurai code, you can see that um, sort of preoccupation with honor all the way from Rashomon, right, to Harakiri, to kind of the 20th century and floating weeds. And you wouldn't be misrepresenting things to say that honor is a very important aspect of Japanese society. Um, and to say so is not to exotify, right, these films. But at the same time, you can also not assume that these particular stories about the loss of honor, about the importance of honor, are representative of all of Japanese society either. So I think it's really important for festival goers, and for my students as well too, um, to really take a middle ground perspective, uh, to be open to the fact that films are complex objects, right? That don't only reflect one truth, they reflect many different um, understandings of reality, depending on whose reality you're talking about. And I think actually the film Rashomon is a really great introduction um, to that way of thinking about the relativity of perception. Dr. Dennis Lowe, Associate Professor of English, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, very fascinating conversation with you today. Thank you so much, Michael. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. Make sure to follow us at Instagram and Twitter at JMU Cohen Center. And be on the lookout for more conversations at the Cohen Center.